I really love this time of year. Um, one of the things that I love about Christmas, personally, is it's far less complicated. In the past, it was much more complicated. It began in childhood for me with the tension of my parents divorcing when I was seven, and then a big move from Wisconsin to Wichita with my dad right after New Year's. Uh, for then the subsequent years of navigating holidays with divorced parents 700 miles apart, tension when our four boys were little, tension of trying to be fair with the gifts with the boys, trying tension as they got older. The gifts seemed to get smaller, but the price tag got bigger. I don't know if you, know, you experienced that. Uh, and because of divorce and remarriage on both sides of our family, our boys ended up having four sets of grandparents. So there's tension of trying to navigate that well. Uh, one year, because of the pressure to keep that grandparent balance over the holidays, we made a very poor choice to drive to Wisconsin for Christmas while Sean and I both had the flu. But Sean and Sean ended up getting pneumonia on New Year's Day. We had to go to the ER. It took us a year to pay off that bill. That was great. And then around the holidays, there was always this pressure to get that perfect family picture, to get in that letter, to get out to everyone. And as many families learn, one of the best ways to ruin holiday joy is getting a family picture, uh, the whole process. And then, you know, but then seven years ago, we became empty nesters, which has been glorious Thank you for asking. And uh, one of the challenges, though, Shauna has faced is her Grinch of a husband, since becoming empty nesters, has had a strong aversion to setting up a Christmas tree. And my reasoning is that with no little kids at home, there's only be like two presents under the tree. So like, what's the point? It's a lot of work. I'm a busy guy. But a few years ago, Shauna won the tree war once again, which is pretty much every year. And I was sitting there and I'm sipping a Guinness and I'm staring at this beautiful tree and I'm pondering, why do I have such a bad attitude about doing something that makes my wife so happy? And then as I reflected back on past years, it hit me. For some inexplicable reason, almost every year when we would set up the Christmas tree, Shauna and I would get into some of our worst arguments over who knows what. Like, it wasn't even connected to the tree. I, I just think it was maybe the stress around that time of year, trying to raise four energetic sons. I mean, all four were born within five years ago, so we, we had a lot of energy in our home. Uh, and for whatever reason, we'd begin setting up the tree, and by the time it was time to go to bed, we just wanted to strangle each other. And I realized I was suffering from a bit of tree PTSD. It's like I'd fully this Christmas tree, like, like you know. And most of you, you've, you've got messiness when it comes to Christmas time in your past. For some of you, your immediate family is messy. And Christmas time just seems to magnify that mess. For some of you, your extended family is messy. For some of you, let's be honest, you are the mess, okay? Uh, and most of us, we can kind of avoid the messiness for most of the year if our families live far away, but around Christmas time, things just seem to bubble up and get amplified, right? And then you add to that the craziness and the activity and the social engagements and the expectations and every be, everyone be joyful. And we are a happy family, dang it. And then there's the night before Christmas or Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, and it's like, okay, who's going to be who, and uh, who's coming over, and if they're coming over, they can't come over, and it can just be extra complicated at Christmas. And the thing that can create tension at Christmas is that Christmas, for some of us, can exaggerate the bad. I mean, as much as we want it to be a distraction from these things, we're reminded that there are problems that we can't solve that there are people that we can't control and there are expectations that we just can't meet. And the truth is, if we pause long enough to look in the mirror, sometimes we realize, I'm the problem I can't solve. 
I'm the person I can't seem to control, and I'm the person setting expectations that sometimes other people can't meet. But here's the thing. Christmas really is one of the most wonderful times of the year, but not because of what's happening, but because of what happened. Because at Christmas, we celebrate the season that causes us to look forward to the event that changed everything, where God sent his son into the world to become the center of history. But more importantly, that God sent his son into the world to become the center of your life and the center of my life. And when Jesus becomes the center of your life, it centers your life on something solid and stable and hopeful in the midst of problems we can't solve, people we can't control and expectations that we can't meet. It centers our life on something that gives us a sense of purpose, a sense of I don't need to fear, even though there may be many things to fear, because at Christmas we are reminded who is for us. And the darker and the more complicated things get, it helps us to focus or refocus on the light of the world that has come into this world to make an extraordinary practical difference in each of our lives, in this life and the next now, if you grew up in church, most of you, uh, you, you know that at the beginning of the New Testament, there are documents we refer to as the four Gospels, Gospel just simply being an old English term that means good news. There's Matthew, there's Mark, there's Luke, there's John. There's four different accounts of the life of Jesus. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts are very similar. John's is very different. Unlike Matthew and Luke, John doesn't give us the birth announcement or talk about the birth of Jesus in the same way. John gives us a different perspective. And the thing that makes John's gospel is so unique is when John wrote his gospel. Because by the time he wrote it, John was an old man. Most historians believe his gospel was the last of the four that was written. And when John sat down to write his gospel, it's as if he was thinking, I want to make sure that these stories are passed on for future generations. Because we know from the book of Acts that John told these stories hundreds and hundreds of times. I mean, if you were someone who sat at the feet of Jesus, imagine how popular you would have been. I mean, with Christians everywhere, they would go, John, John you, you were there for it all. Like, you saw him. Like, what was it like? What was he like? So he's told these stories many, many, many times. And John, this is the John that reduced God to a single word, love, which is extraordinary because nobody before Jesus ever gave that term or described God with love. And the other reason it's amazing is because of what John had seen and what he had experienced in his life when he wrote God is Love. At this point, you, John had experienced incredible, a lifetime of incredible problems. He couldn't solve and people he couldn't control and expectations that he couldn't meet. And he had experienced loss like you and I can't even begin to imagine. He lost all his closest friends to horrific deaths. He lost his family members. In some ways, he had lost his whole society, his whole culture. John was alive when Nero sent General Vespasian into Galilee, who slaughtered thousands and thousands of Jewish people, who sent thousands of men and women and children to the slave markets of Rome. John lived through all of that. John lived through Vespasian, leaving his son outside the holy city of Jerusalem for seven months of siege as people starved to death and plagues broke out. And the Roman army crucified hundreds, if not thousands, of men and women on scaffolding all around the city, just doing whatever they could to break the will of the people to get inside. And in 70 AD, John either saw or heard the story, stories of the temple being burned and razed to the ground, over a million Jews slaughtered, over two or 300,000 sent to the slave markets. 
his close friend Peter, who was with him that entire extraordinary time with Jesus, journeyed all around Palestine, and his friend Paul, they were both executed by Nero. And here's why I tell you all this. Because as we consider the messiness and the difficulties in our own lives, through all of that bloodshed, all of that loss, all of that pain and tragedy and chaos that we can't even begin to imagine, John never lost faith. In fact, the Gospel of John is referred to by theologians as the book of signs. Miracles that Jesus did publicly to demonstrate that he was who he said he was. John writes about seven, actually eight, changing water into wine, the healing of the royal official's son, the healing of the paralytic, the the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, healing the man blind from birth, the raising of Lazarus, and then ultimately the resurrection. And at the end of the Gospel of John, John writes, and Jesus performed many other signs. In fact, between now and Christmas would be a perfect time to read the book of John. John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not recorded in this book. In other words, I've just given you a taste. I've given, just given you a taste of what we've experienced with Jesus. And then he says this, but these are written, why? So that you may believe. In other words, I'm hoping that after you read this account of Jesus' life, that you won't just be amazed or impressed, but that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that you might believe that by believing you may have life, a different kind of life, a new life in his name. And we miss how easily, we miss easily how incredible this statement is. Because again, think of it, in spite of all John had seen, smelled, and experienced the destruction of everything and the loss of just about everyone important to him. John still is hanging on to this idea that Jesus remains somehow the source of life, of some kind of life that went beyond physical life. So John doesn't begin his gospel with the birth birth narrative, which is surprising because when Jesus was crucified and dying from the cross, this is the John. The same John, where he goes, John, I want you to take my mother as your mother, and mom, I want you to take him as your son. And if anybody spent a lot of time together, it was John and Mary. Uh, so John and Mary, they spent a lot of time together. Some people think that, uh, that they uh, say that they eventually went to Ephesus, where John took care of Mary until she died. If anyone had the opportunity to say, Mary, tell me the story one more time. What was it like when you discovered you were pregnant? What was it like to see an angel? What, what did you feel? What was that like? Mary, what was it like to know that you carried and birthed the Son of God? I mean, he had heard this story so many times, and yet when John begins his gospel, he doesn't begin with shepherds or a manger or Egypt or Herod or the slaughter of little boys in Bethlehem. Please don't miss next next week. John begins with the significance of the birth of Jesus. And just like they were very, very dark days when John wrote his gospel, John was reminded that they were very, very dark days when Jesus was born as well. But before John got into the narratives and the details. Here's what he says. And again, this is so powerful for us, especially right now in this season. The season of our lives where things can get so amplified and complicated and we're stressed, maybe we're reminded of our financial limitations or stressed because of who will be coming over for the holidays or who won't come or pain over who can't come because of death 
or division in the family. For some of us, the amplified feelings of isolation and loneliness that we battle. John, who has seen his friends tortured and executed and the destruction of everything important to him. He says, when I think about Jesus, the best way that I know how to put it is in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And this is a huge statement because of who it's coming from. Because when they began to view Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, they thought what Jesus was going to do, that he was going to do for Israel. And it would be the continuation of what we call the Old Testament. But John, as an old man, says, no, Jesus didn't simply come for us, the Jews. What Jesus has done, he has come, what he's come for is to bring life and light for all of mankind. John was there the day after Jesus had risen from the dead. And then he was there 40 days later when Jesus gathered his guys together and and they asked, okay, Jesus, is finally, is now going to be the time that you're going to restore Israel as the kingdom? Is now the time that we're going to run the Romans off and reestablish our independence? Is now the time? And John was there when Jesus said, no, that's not your concern. That's not why you're here. The reason that you're here is because now you are to go into every single nation and share, share with every single ethnic group, people group, every man, woman, and child what you've seen me do and what you've heard me say. And you're to make followers of me and disciples of all nations, that this isn't a Jewish light. This is a light for all mankind. And as John thought about the darkness around him that he had experienced, that again, we can't even begin to imagine, John says at the beginning of his gospel, the light shines right now in the darkness. He says, in spite of all the darkness, all of the death, all of the destruction, the suffering, and the fact that everything I've grown to know and love is gone. And I myself, I'm exiled from my my home. In spite of all of that, this light shines right now in the darkness. And the darkness has not. And I wonder if he just paused and thought, what's the right word? This light, this light of Christ, this light of Jesus. It's as if this darkness has worked to put it out, to snuff it out, to overwhelm it, to seize it, to imprison it. And as hard as it seems that the world and our culture has tried to blow out this light, the darkness has not overcome it. And again, this is a man who got news that his dear friend, the Apostle Paul, had been beheaded outside the city. Peter had been crucified. He was perhaps the last apostle alive. And possibly with a grin on his face, he wrote, in spite of everything the world has done to try and eradicate the light that is Jesus and is from Jesus in my life and in the world, the darkness has failed. Caesar couldn't do it. Tiberius couldn't do it. Nero couldn't do it. The destruction of the temple didn't do it. The death of Jesus didn't do it. The death of James and Peter and Paul didn't do it. And writing this gospel is the John who raced to the tomb that day when he heard that the the tomb was empty and that they had stolen the body. John who raced to beat Peter there. And John who peered into an empty tomb. This is the same John that had breakfast with his risen Savior on the beach who absolutely was absolutely convinced No matter what we face or what happens in this life, no matter how deep the heartache or extreme the fear or how deep the depression, that there is a light that shines in the darkness and there is no amount and no type of darkness that can put it out. So at Christmas, 
when we're confronted maybe like no other time of the year with the fact that there are problems we simply can't solve because you have problems that you can't solve. Maybe you are the problem someone else is trying to solve. I'm one of those. When we're confronted with the fact that there are people that we just can't control, and no matter how rational you are at times or how many conversations you have or what you try to to help them understand or see your perspective, no matter how much you try to influence them, no matter how many conversations you have, there are just people in your life that you can't control. Just like you and I. And and there are people, they just have expectations you're never going to meet. Just like we at times, if we're not careful, we can set expectations for other people to meet when the truth is they were not created to meet them. They're not capable of meeting them. And we set them up for struggle or pain. We're reminded in the midst of all that darkness that Jesus is the life and the light who overcomes darkness. Christmas time reminds us that there is always hope. There is always a reason to believe. There is a God who hears our prayer. There is a reason why we can wake up every single day and take that next step. Because what makes Christmas the most wonderful time of the year is not necessarily what's happening, but what happened when your Heavenly Father and mine sent His Son into this world for us, into the darkness that we all eventually face because in him, John says, was and is the light of all mankind, the light that now shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, not then, not now, not ever. Let me pray for us. Father, I am so grateful. I'm so grateful for the text that we have, so grateful that John recorded as much as he did for us that we might know and understand and believe that there is a God who transcends space and time and yet loves us in spite of. I thank you for sending Christ on our behalf to do what we could never do for ourselves. And so in this season of craziness, Father, I, I pray for everyone listening to my voice because all of us have these things in our life that feel out of control, concerns, things and people and family members that create anxiousness and tension, things about ourselves that we just wonder, why am I still struggling with this? And I pray in this season where there's so much chaos that, God, that you would somehow get a grip on our heart and our mind and cause us to just know you are with us and you are for us and that you love us, and that you will never leave us and never forsake us. I thank you for this season to celebrate the birth of your son that points us to the event of the resurrection. Thank you for touching down on this earth to be with us, to dwell with us, and to become our friend. I thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.